why don't we get started? Uh, welcome to the Stand, Fight, Win live stream. Real lawyers, real answers. We're broadcasting live on Facebook and YouTube, as we always do. And you can find a recorded version of this video on Facebook and YouTube uh, once we're done. So I am Keith Davidson. I'm Stuart Albertson. And we are here today to talk to you about no contest clauses. Seems like we're constantly talking about no contest clauses, doesn't it? We, we talk about them a lot. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about this because first of all, I think no contest clauses are confusing. Would you agree in terms of how they apply, when they apply, when they don't apply, how they apply, the exceptions to them? And the other thing that's interesting about it is it's the one area of trust law that seems to change a lot because most of the stuff that we deal with in trusts and wills have been with us for centuries and centuries. Like creating a will is pretty much the same as it's been for hundreds of years. Right. Um, but no contest clauses. It seems like there's been a lot of change right. in the last few years. Yeah. So people keep trying to get it right. And today what we want to talk about is an appellate case that came out that is probably going to be a major change to how no contest clauses are applied. And this is the case of Sarah Key versus Elizabeth Tyler. Came out from the second appellate district um, appellate court on April 19th. And the site, for anybody who wants to look it up, it's a 2019 case, is 34 Calap 5th, 505. And 34 Calap 5th, 505? That's it. All right. Um, so this is a long case. If you, you know, I printed it out. It's 50 some odd pages because there's a lot of different issues going on in this case. But there's only one issue that I really want to talk about today. And that is, in this case, you have a party who, and that's uh, Key. So Key brought a trust contest trying to set aside an amendment, claiming that the amendment was based on undue influence. And so she's challenging the validity of a document. And the other party, Tyler, uh, defended against that and said, no, no, the, the amendment was valid and was not undue influence. And Tyler lost. The amendment was tossed out as being a product of undue influence, which doesn't all happen all that often in trial court level. So Key won the trust contest. Okay, well, she's not going to be... Uh, disinherited because she didn't challenge a valid part of the trust. She challenged the amendment. The amendment was invalid. She's good. I think the key that you're setting up here is is that Key filed a trust contest. Yes. And normally the person filing a trust contest is the one that is triggering the no contest clause. In our minds, yes. In our minds. And that's been the way that all practitioners have viewed that's this. Right. And so who's the second individual here? Tyler. Tyler. So Tyler comes along and said, she just comes along because she served papers in the trust contest that has yes. been filed by Key. And she goes, no, 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 no. This is a valid amendment. I don't know what you're talking about. It's valid. And I'm filing an opposition to your trust contest that right. you chose to file. And of course, you're triggering the no contest clause because you're saying that this is not a valid trust. I'm just here saying it's a valid document. Yeah, and so I think that's a perfect uh, summary of what I was trying to get at. And so, so would Tyler, the person who's just defending against this trust contest for the trust amendment, she loses, but would, in our minds before this case, would she be triggering the no contest clause? Well, and not, not according to what we've read in the past. I've always felt that there was something funny about the idea that right. you could get mom or dad to change their original trust a day before they died 
and then you have the good amendment that gives everything to you and that you're not going against the no contest clause in the original trust, I've always thought in my mind that didn't make sense, but I've never put two and two together fully until I read this opinion. Yeah, because I would have said, no, if you're defending a trust contest, you're not triggering the no contest clause because you're not taking an affirmative action. Defending against a trust contest. Yeah, if you're defending against a trust contest, you're not taking an affirmative action to set aside a trust amendment, therefore you're not triggering the no contest clause. This case, Key versus Tyler says no you are potentially triggering the no contest clause. If you defend against a trust amendment and it turns out that that trust amendment is in fact invalid because of undue influence and lack of capacity. Right. Which I find a little bit shocking and I, I, I think I have a different view of it than you did is, yeah, but you're not bringing a case. When you're defending, you're not bringing a case. But what the court said is, but you are making a filing in court. Right. And if you look under the no contest clause statute, one of the types of, uh, when they define a pleading. What particular statute? It's probate code what are you looking at? It's 21.310. Okay. So if you look under 21.310, it defines a pleading, and a pleading includes an objection, a response, an answer, a cross-complaint. So, okay, I guess that, that could be that. And the other thing, though, is a direct contest is when you say this, this document is not valid because of undue influence. That's what Key did. But Tyler just said... No, no, it is valid. That's all that, right. That's all she said. She didn't say um, that some other part of the trust was valid or invalid because of undue influence. Right. But what the court said is yes, but by defending against that, you af- by, by defending the bad amendment, you effectively are revoking a former portion of the trust that was there otherwise. And that's what I always felt funny about. It yes. always felt funny that the one, let's, let's call it the bad actor, getting an a, a invalid amendment and it always hits me, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, that the invalid amendment is presumed to be valid. It's a presumption that it's a valid amendment if it's been signed, legal right? presumption, yeah. Yeah, it's a legal presumption. And so I always thought that if you change the original intent of what somebody had said, and there's a no contest clause in that original document, that original intent, aren't you changing that document? And aren't you the one that's triggering that no contest clause? And the court would agree with you. And so the court says, yeah, and the, and the way the court... It was kind of an interesting way the way they did the analysis because they said, well, one of the things that you that constitutes a direct contest is if you attempt to revoke a trust or any of its provisions, and this effectively is doing that. If by you advocating for a bad amendment, you're effectively revoking what the proper trust terms are, and so that is a contest. You're, you're, you're entering into a contest of the trust terms, the proper trust terms. And, and I've forgotten the name of, uh, not Key, but... Uh, Tyler. Tyler is really, I mean, if you think about it, she's an involuntary contestant. Yeah. She doesn't, I mean, if she doesn't do anything, more than likely the court's going to say that the, that the amendment's invalid. Right. But if you do something, well, now you're putting yourself in a position where maybe the no contest clause could be used against you. And they, Well, and I guess the court would say, but this... No, con- this amendment fell because the court found that yes, there was undue influence on the part of Tyler. So I guess in theory, Tyler should have known what she did, and she should have not tried to defend the amendment. Assuming the right decision was made by the judges, yeah. but uh, you know, if, if I mean, let's say that there that Tyler truly did do bad acts here, she would have known that. But what if Tyler didn't do bad acts here and this is a good amendment and now you're in a position where you have to come forward to support an amendment and you're essentially entering the trust contest whether you like it or not. 
Yeah, you're being forced to do it. But you know, it's kind of like what we talked about in the past on uh, creditor's claim, which is it's a forced election. So you can either choose to defend against a, a trust contest, knowing you're risking it, right? Or you can choose not to. You right. have to make an election at the beginning, right? And you know, maybe you make the right choice, maybe you make the wrong choice, but it's a tough, it's a tough position to be in. And you know, the funny thing in my mind is Tyler, who's defending the trust contest. I'll bet you anything you could have gone out and talked to a hundred trust litigators throughout California and not one of them would have said Tyler's risking anything by right. defending. That's right. They would have said, no, no, Tyler can defend and there's that's no a, And risk. so now Tyler's surprised and yeah. 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 Very, well, more importantly, Tyler's attorneys are probably pretty surprised that, hey, right. now your clients can be disinherited just for defending. Right. So not only did you lose the trust contest on the amendment, yeah. but now you've lost your gift even under yeah. the original trust. You know, you know I, I've said for a long time that California, and you're right, the no contest clause legislation has changed at least four times since 2000. I mean, that's 18, 19 years. It's changed four times and it's changed significantly. And that's a lot. For with each one of those iterations. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. said, just get rid of no contest clauses. Yes. If you would just get rid of them. Yes. They don't, I mean, they do work to some extent, but the, they, they work negatively. They work in a way they shouldn't work in many cases. Right. And so just get rid of the no contest clause. Let people fight it out. Um, I know that there was one state that you had pointed out to me a while back that actually allowed you to do a trust contest while the, the trust creators were still living. Yes. And so that way you could get all of the evidence and everything for the future. Maybe that's the way you do it. But, but having these no contest clauses, first of all, nobody knows the future. They don't know how these no contest clauses will be interpreted. They're all drafted differently. And then, of course, judges are people. And as we've right. seen in many cases we've been involved with, you can go into one court and get one decision, and you'll go in with that same issue to another court, another judge, and you're gonna get the, ex the exact opposite decision. That's neither right nor wrong. I'm just saying that judges are people. They're gonna look at these cases. One judge may see a contest, where in the same case, another judge may not see a contest. And so right. it causes so many problems. Let's just get rid of these no contest clauses. I think you're right. And I don't think it would, I don't think it would increase the amount of litigation we have because in a vast majority of the cases, people are completely disinherited. So there's no incentive to not sue anyway to, to challenge a trust amendment. Right. And the problem with this is it's an appellate court decision that kind of throws a wrench into the works. And I was thinking about that too, is that when you have a change in the statute, by the legislature that goes through the California Judicial Committee and practitioners people who practice you know work in this area have a chance to comment on those laws before they come into effect this is just an appellate court doing the best they can I mean they read the statute they interpreted it they said that well defending uh, under the statute is a triggering event for no contest clauses but it wasn't vetted the way legislation is vetted now California legislature could go back and change this result of this appellate case um, but I think you're right. I think the problem with no contest clauses is they're just so complex. Half the time they don't work. When they do work, they work in all the wrong ways. It's just, it's, it's time to go. Let me ask you in this case, and I don't remember when I perused this a couple of weeks ago when you gave it to me. Uh, did the amendment in this case have a provision that said that they were essentially restating and reincorporating everything from the original trust? I believe so, but I don't remember. Be, and, and the reason I raise this is because the whole protected instrument idea behind no contest clauses, and there's a yes. whole series of rules there, complex analysis that goes into what is and what is not a protected instrument. And so 
this is this this is again why this case is going to cause more problems because in some cases you're clearly going to have an amendment that's a quote unquote protected instrument and would fall under this analysis and then you're going to have other cases where it's maybe not a protected instrument and the question is does it still fall under this analysis yeah is it still a, a contest at the end of the day if you end up losing when you're saying this is the valid amendment um and so there, there there's that's again where it goes back to let's get rid of no contest clauses or let's go back to what we had before when the court system was overwhelmed with safe harbor applications where we were allowed to present to the court our trust contest ahead of time saying can we file this and if we do will we will we be triggering the trust no contest clause and the court would tell us either yes or no you are you are not and that made it easier for us so that we weren't getting heirs to basically lose their inheritance by filing an action. Well, that's the hardest part is that how do you tell somebody if they're going to lose their inheritance if they lose the lawsuit? It's hard to know, even with probable cause. So if you bring in trust contests and you have probable cause, right. you won't be disinherited. A court can let you off the hook. But we won't know if you have probable cause until the very end of the lawsuit, after you lose. And not only will we not know that, one judge may say you have probable cause and another judge might right. under the same identical set of facts say no you don't have probable cause and i you can even take it a step further and say anybody who's defending an amendment and then they lose based on undue influence they'll never have probable cause because if they're the ones doing the bad actions and the court says yes those were bad actions that's undue influence you should have known at the beginning so how do you ever have probable cause if you're defending against the trust contest. I got a question for you, and this one I'm throwing out from uh, right field, if you will, and that is, let's say that uh, somehow, some way, we bring a financial elder abuse cause of action, and that goes to a jury trial, and the jury comes back and says that the bad actor here exor- uh, uh, is guilty of financial elder abuse by getting someone to create an amendment by undue influence. Yeah. Is that a triggering of the no contest clause? That's a possibly. I mean, isn't isn't the, isn't the jury if they come back and say that you basically got an amendment by financial elder abuse yeah. through the use of undue influence? I think so. I mean, I think now that's the next logical step. Now, now usually yeah. with the trust contest, we get heard first in the probate court, but not always. I mean, somehow, some way, a financial elder abuse ca- cause of action, which is a civil count, goes in front of a jury in a civil court. It's going to happen sooner or later. If that goes through and there's a finding of bad faith and undue influence and those types of things, boy, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about filing, uh, if I'm on the winning side of that, I'm going to think about filing a petition to disinherit that individual who lost in that civil case because there's a finding of undue influence. Yeah, and, and the court even said that the definition of pleading is very wide. It includes complaints, cross-complaints, answers, objections, responses. I mean, that that's all the stuff that you use both in civil court and probate court. Right. So it's, it's certainly possible. Right. It definitely, this case, I think, blew a huge hole into what we thought, what most practitioners thought of for no contest clauses. It subjects people who are defending against no contest clauses. It subjects them to possibly triggering the no contest clause and being disinherited. So the amount of disinheritances will increase because of this. And who knows? I mean, if people start using it in the civil context for financial elder abuse, then the chances of disinheritance are, are going to go up even more. But this is one person, This you know, the, the, the losing party here, Tyler, this is one person who was disinherited who wouldn't have been under previous law. Well, isn't there also a common law count for un, uh, undue influence yeah, with, with contracts? Absolutely. So what if you show what if you show that you have a beneficiary that got grandma 
to uh, sign a contract for care right. and it was brought by undue influence and you're re trying to rescind the contract and you win that case and you, the other person opposes that, says, no, it's a good contract. Right. I should have been able to care. It, can we now take that? And again, we're getting a little bit far here, but the point is you show undue influence or bad actions by somebody. I want to come and say, hey, they're trying to defeat the estate plan of that person. Yeah. Well, you know, on the one hand, if we're going to have no contest clauses, maybe it's good that it applies to both sides. The person bringing and the person defending. As you said, you always thought the person defending against these things, especially if they lose, they should be disinherited. Right. So maybe it's not such a bad thing. I think the better thing is let's just get rid of no contest clauses because they're not doing any good and they're not serving the purpose that people think they're going to serve. But right. this case might have just blown it wide open to where you're going to see a, a lot more of that. Right. I don't doubt that. Right. Any other thoughts? I mean, the only other thought I have is that, look, this stuff's not black and white. And, yeah. you know, we go to mediations with clients quite often and they're very frustrated because we can't give them you know, 100% this and 100% that. And in many people's lives, their lives are black and white. And, and the, the legal profession, unfortunately, doesn't lend itself to that. And I also think that these judges, and by the way, these judges, I think the majority of judges out there are hardworking. They're good judges. I'm not just saying that because maybe a judge sees this someday. I really do think judges really want to make good decisions. They want to be good citizens. Mm -hmm. They want to fulfill their obligations. That's the reason they're there is to help resolve disputes that have arisen between people and we don't want people shooting each other in the street. So we come in, in front of judges, but I can tell you the fact that one judge reading this case and another judge reading this case, they're gonna come away with completely different ideas and we don't always know what judge we're gonna end up in front of when we go to trial. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a question later on about settlement and will this induce settlements to happen? You know, most cases end up settling because it's so expensive, but also because you don't know what the outcome's gonna be. You don't know which judge you're gonna get. And you might get a judge that's a stickler. You might get a judge that's a little bit more open-minded. Uh, you, you never know who you're gonna get. And all the judges, again, I think try very hard and I think they're doing the best they can, but you're getting different results. Yeah, I mean, people have different experiences, different backgrounds. And one of the things we said in our book, Your Lawsuit, in the, in the beginning of it, is that people are the law. Laws aren't the law. Laws are just guidelines. People are the ones that apply the law. Judges, lawyers, witnesses, juries. And these people are gonna ultimately decide, you know, whether you win or lose. And there's just, it, it's a gamble. You don't know what they're gonna do. And it, it's, it's a very wide latitude. And that's why people, at the very beginning of a case, when you say, okay, you're, you're risking something. If you defend, if you're the client, I'm the lawyer, and I say, okay, you're gonna defend against this trust contest. Guess what? You're risking something, and you're gonna ask me, what am I risking? And what's the chances right. that, that risk is gonna to come to light? And right. I'm gonna say, well, you're risking whatever your interest would be under the trust, which if it's zero, you're risking nothing. If it's a million dollars, you're risking a million dollars. And the chances? I don't know. It depends. Yeah, it depends. It could be a 1% chance, it yeah. could be a 90% chance. That's right. And it's gonna change over time. That's right. So it's very difficult to advise a client of that. but. You know, we do the best we can. And this is just one area of trust litigation. I mean, this is just one area that we deal with. Yeah. Uh, this is a complex area. It is. And there's a, there's a lot of parts to it. And then, of course, there's litigation, which litigation in and of itself, just plain Jane litigation, it's complex and difficult it has as well. Twists and turns. That's right. Yeah. It's a bit like a soap opera. Yeah. Let's see if we can get to some questions and see if we can uh, make some more sense out of this. So, Kayla, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Oh, there's Kayla. Hello. <laughs> Our first question is, what is a no contest clause? 
Why don't you let me take a stab at that? Yes. Uh, well, actually, I'll, why don't I ask you and you can define it? So let's, <laughs> no, let's why do don't it. you take a stab? Okay, thank you. I will take a stab <laughs> well, at it. Let me ask you. Okay, what, please. What, what, what is a no contest clause? Uh, what, is, what are these things we're talking about? So when we meet with clients uh, in our conference room and we, they're at, by the way, this is the one area. Well, it's not just the one area, but it comes up over and over again where clients have Googled this and they <laughs> seem to know what no contest clauses are. So yeah. if I can, I think I've shared this in the past on these videos, please don't come in here and educate me on no contest clauses. I actually know about, it's like educating a heart surgeon on how to do, not that yeah. I'm that good as a there's heart a surgeon. There's a left ventricle. Yeah, yeah, right. right yeah, ventricle. yeah, let me do my work. Let yeah. me do my job. At least give me a chance to explain what a no contest a clause is. Chance, yeah, yeah, a sporting chance. Okay. So, so the general rule is, is that no contest clauses are outlawed in California. They're no longer applicable except in three situations. And so those are the three situations that unfortunately come up over and over again. Mm -hmm. And one of those is what we call a direct contest where you're trying to invalidate either a trust or some part of a trust, an amendment or a statement, doesn't matter what it is. You're trying to invalidate that document based on undue influence, lack of capacity, duress, fraud. Mm -hmm. The ones we see over and over again are undue influence and lack of capacity. If you file that trust contest, you are triggering the no contest clause. Which means if you lose, you'll be disinherited. Which means if you lose the case, there's a chance you could be disinherited on that prong. Remember we said there was three prongs that you still, uh, that still allow for no contest clauses to apply. That's the first prong. And there's a probable cause exception that applies to that prong. And maybe you can walk us through that. I know you had done some work on that in a recent trial we worked on. So what is the probable cause exception to that first prong? You file a, 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 a trust contest against the most final amendment of the trust, and you end up losing that case. And you certainly trigger the no contest clause. The question is, are you going to forfeit your inheritance now? And that's based on, yeah, if you had probable cause, which really means, did you have a reasonable basis to believe that you had a chance of winning your case after further discovery? Which means you have to have some suspicion. It can't just be nothing. So, you know, grandma was, had dementia and, you know, my brother was isolating her and not allowing me to go see her. And she always was going to leave all her assets equally to the grandkids. And then a week before her death, she changed it and left it all to this one brother who was isolating her. That would be an example of a fact pattern that is suspicious. And the brother ended up taking her to a new lawyer she'd never met. In fact, didn't even take her to the lawyer, just right. got the documents drafted up, brought them in front of her, signed them. I mean, there's all of that raises suspicion. Yes. And so then the court can say, even though you lost the trust contest against the amendment, which in that case it would be hard to lose, but if you did, uh, we're not going to hold the loss against you and hold right. this. Okay, so that's the first prong. Then there's two more prongs, and we don't see these as often, but they do come up from time to time. And that is the first one is if you file a creditor's claim. If you file a creditor's claim because dad promised you the condo in Hawaii mm -hmm. and he forgot to take it out of the trust and now you're saying, no, I've been paying on it for the last you know, five years and I want all my money back and I, um, you know, I want to enforce the transfer of the property out, mm -hmm. well now uh, you've triggered the no contest clause and there's no probable cause exception there. You make your election. And the third and final is simply saying that your parents, the people that created the trust, the trustors, did not have the power or authority or ownership rights to transfer property to their trust. Mm -hmm. And so let's say there's a house that you own jointly with your, or you, you somehow there's an interest you own, but maybe it's not uh, on title uh, with the recorder's office and your parents and everybody knows about it, your brothers and sisters know about it, and then your mom and dad transfer that asset 100% to the trust, even though everyone understands you own 50% of that property, 
Well, if you come along and say they didn't have the authority to transfer the whole 100% into the trust, mm -hmm. well, now you're in a position where you've triggered the no contest clause with no probable cause exception. So in summary, no contest clauses don't apply except in three circumstances. The first being a direct trust contest based on undue influence, lack of capacity, filing a creditor's claim, and challenging your parents' right to transfer property to the trust. That's where no contest clauses apply. And essentially it says that if you trigger the no contest clause and you lose uh, on two of those prongs, you're gonna forfeit your entire inheritance on the first prong, and that is undue influence, lack of capacity, you may or may not forfeit your entire inheritance depending on whether you had probable cause to bring the trust contest. It's that simple, Keith. It's just it's that, that simple. simple. We even had a case where somebody did file a creditor's claim, did trigger the no contest clause, and the trial court said, Yes, we agree that all that happened, but we're not going to disinherit them. And that case is now up on appeal. Yeah, and that's <laughs> and that's that judge, and that judge would view it that way, but I can guarantee yeah. you, you go over one county to another judge that I know of, and that case goes in front of that judge, it's gonna be, be a contest. Yeah, yeah so, yeah. right, yeah. What's the next question, Kayla? The next question is, is there any way to discourage a contest without violating the no contest clause? So Keith, what I'm seeing here is, I think what I'm seeing here is under this new case that you read, and let's say that you know you think somebody's going to file a trust contest and you don't want to be involved in that trust contest because it may apply to one or both sides, how can you discourage a trust contest? Well, are you talking about so if you're if you're the set law, the person creating the trust, the way the best way to create uh, an incentive is to leave the disinherited person something. Don't leave them nothing. If you, if I disinherit you, you're my son. I disinherit you. You have nothing to lose by contesting. But if I leave you a sizable gift, half a million dollars, assuming that's sizable to you, then you're going to stop in your tracks and say, maybe I won't contest this. We've had cases where uh, we've had clients that went from they they just lost five percent. They were going to get forty percent. They went down to thirty five percent. But it still was a very large estate. It wasn't worth contesting. It wasn't worth the risk just for that extra 5%. That's how you create an incentive not to contest. Now, let's say you're not the parent. Let's say you're, you're, you know, you created an amendment. You're my brother. I don't like the amendment. I'm going to sue you. How do you create an incentive so that you don't have to risk filing a lawsuit to defend that amendment? you offer something before litigation, right? And that's where you get into these pre-litigation mediations where you say, hey, why don't we go and talk about this and see if we can work something out? Because it might be better to work out a deal pre-litigation rather than having to file, defend, for you to have to file in court, defend your action, and potentially lose your inheritance. So those were the two things that came to my mind. What do you think? No, I think that's right. And I think that uh, the, the question as I read it was going to the, the latter, and that is, you know, you, you think that your brother or sister are going to file a trust contest and you're concerned now based on this new case that if you, if they do file that trust contest and you end up saying, no, this is a good amendment, well, now you theoretically may be Trigger. triggering the no contest clause right. as well. Um, I guess there's a couple of comments I have to that. Number one, 95% of cases settle, 92%, 93, I don't know, a majority of cases settle. So you're never going to get to a court actually making a, a determination in most cases. Uh, but in those cases where you think that it may go all the way, I like your idea. And we've been doing these. I'm, I was against these for years because I didn't think we, you, could, you can go very far with them. But recently, we've been doing some pre-lawsuit mediations. 
And at, at a minimum, they help us all at least understand the issues that on both sides, the opposing right. side and our side, understand what the issues are that we, we disagree on and what needs to be resolved. But in a majority of those cases, within the last couple of years, they've actually settled in pre- mm -hmm. Uh, mediation, uh, litigation. pre litigation uh, mediation. And so I think that that may be a way to answer this question, and that is at least reach out to the other side and see if there's a way to resolve the matter before either side files. And that way nobody's risking anything, and you can hopefully work it out. But that's, it's not, it's still a rarity to be able to do that. It's a rare case that can settle before the lawsuit, but. It's something that to at least try. By the way, the qu I've always had a question, and I'll put you on the spot here, and I've never got an answer to it. Let's say that we want to do a pre-litigation mediation, but more than 120 days is going to run after the, the stat notice. Can you? Can the parties extend out a 120-day statute of limitations on a trust contest, or is that just absolute? I've seen people enter into these tolling agreements where they agree to toll that statute. I don't know with 100% certainty if it's valid because the statute doesn't allow for that, but you certainly can do it in other areas. We do it on uh, uh, malpractice cases. We'll ask you know, an attorney who made a mistake to sign a tolling agreement to toll you know, being able to file a lawsuit. So it seems to me that if all the parties agree, there's nothing wrong with you doing that. The only problem is the trust is not necessarily, it, it, there could be par beneficiaries to the trust that aren't signing on to that tolling agreement. And I think that's where you run into problems. If, if I enter into a tolling agreement between myself and the trustee, but not with the other beneficiaries, I think those other beneficiaries could come forward and, and cause a problem. Well, and I think also it leaves the trustee in a bad situation because what if, I think the trustee's ultimately liable if they enter into a, a tolling agreement other beneficiaries that haven't said anything thus far in the trust contest may come after the trustee saying you shouldn't have entered into that. That's and that, right. that causes some litigation there too. So sounds like if you're gonna do a pre-litigation mediation, it needs to be done pretty quickly. Yeah. And to get a good mediator, it takes sometimes 60 days, 70 days, 80 days to get in with that mediator. Right. So you're gonna be pushing the edge of that 120 day stat notice. Or what you do is you have, you know, the people who are gonna contest, they file. And then rather than filing your objection or response, you all agree to push it out. Push it out. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a good way to do it too. All right, we got we got a little carried away there, Kayla. So why include a no contest clause? Is it wise? <laughs> well, Stuart, how of all the no contest clauses that we see, how many people do you think the trust creators, the set lawyers, how many of them thought understood that it was even in there? Probably, I would say, less than 1%. Yeah. And, and they don't know any of, any of the other provisions of their trust either. <laughs> they have a rough idea yeah. of what the distribution provisions are going to be. Yeah. But they, even then, when you get trusts involved for one kid because the kid's not responsible, they don't understand how all of that works. Yeah, most trusts are 30 to 50 pages long. Yeah. And the no contest clauses, if it's a 50-page trust, the no contest clause is usually found on page 47, 48. Yes, yeah. And it's the same one that you see over and over again. Now, there's different iterations of it because the law has changed here so much. But now we see the new one over and over again that just simply copies the statute. Right. Um, so you already mentioned the benefit of no contest clauses, and that is if you know you got a real savvy uh, estate planning lawyer that's advising a, a mom and a dad in a blended family, and let's say there's one child. Uh, what do we call the one child that's bad? I mean, we used to call them the Stewart. We call them Stewart. We have the child that you know never never went and educated themselves, and you know has basically maybe has a drug problem or alcohol problem, and doesn't yeah. do anything with their life. 
um, you might want to say out of a $10 million estate, you might want to carve off $1 million for them. And I've heard people, when I used to do estate planning, I'd have clients tell me, I don't want to give them a penny. And I say, that's fine, don't give them a penny, but then you, you've given them no incentive not to file a trust contest. That's right. So give them something, give them something that's meaningful. You know, half a million dollars, mm -hmm. that's usually when it starts to talk to people. Right. Because $500,000, that's real money. Tax-free, that's real money. Yeah. That's a million dollars worth of earnings. Mm -hmm. You know, because the rest, 50% goes to taxes, right? So you give somebody $500,000 cold, hard cash and a distribution. Yes, their brothers and sisters end up with two or three million each, but they get their $500,000 and they have to put that on the line if they file a trust contest. Yeah, and that's the problem with the state planning is most people don't do the planning part. They don't really understand what's in the trust because there's a lot of legalese. The estate planning attorney says, no, no, don't worry about it. We put that on everything, you want that. You don't know any better, how would you know? But if you're actually planning out, like we want to figure out how to do this the right way, like what you just described, then yeah, no contest clauses can work and they can serve their purpose. But when you just put them in willy-nilly in every trust that's ever created right. and you don't think about it, then they're a mess and they don't work and they just cause even more litigation and unintended results. So I'm not sure that it is such a great thing anymore, but they can be used if you talk about it and think about it and plan it out. That's what a planning is about but that's what's so often missed in right. estate planning. That's right. All right, Kayla. The next question is, how can I be sure that I've met the probable cause standard for trust contests? All right, Keith, so this is where you're filing a trust contest based on undue influence or lack of capacity. And let's say you have a, a million dollar gift coming under that trust, uh, and you realize that if you file this, you're gonna be triggering the no contest clause and I myself would like to know, since you're the wise one, yes. how do we make sure that we have probable cause before filing the trust contest? Well, there is one point in time when you will know with certainty <laughs> if you have probable cause. And that point in time comes at the very end of the case, once you went through the entire trial, if you lose it, and then somebody brings a no contest clause petition to try and force it against you, and then the court rules on it. At that point in time, you will know with certainty okay. whether you had probable cause or not. I no. think this the person that asked this question was uh -huh. wanting you to be a seer I see. And, and, and help them. You don't like that point in time. I don't like that point in time. Okay. I want to know before. So let's, let's pull I, it back. <laughs> so you want the point in time at the beginning of the case. Yes. Okay. The answer is you'll never know with 100% certainty. It can't happen. But what you can do and what we've done a lot is you can try to increase your chances and the way you increase your chances is you send inquiries to the trustee asking to see things. So can I see the other amendments? Can I see the original trust? Can I see the medical records? Can I see this and that? It doesn't matter if they send them to you or not. In fact, it's even better if they don't, I suppose, because you can say, hey, I tried to get as informed as possible. They kept this information from me. Therefore, I have a reasonable basis to think that I might win after doing further discovery. And so you can kind of stack the deck in your, in your favor a little right. bit, that's one thing. Number two, judges don't really wanna disinherit people unless they have to, or unless the person is just seen as a very bad person. Mm -hmm. So if you have any type of equities on your side, then you wanna to try to enhance that if you can, uh, just to show that, look, and we were just innocent kids. We thought that mom was being taken care of and lo and behold, the caretaker did a new trust amendment. What right. are we gonna do? Right. So some cases are gonna be better than others. And then lastly, what are you risking? 
So if you're getting a gift of 25 grand, but you're doing a trust contest, and if you win that trust contest, you're gonna get five million. Well, you're willing to risk 25,000 for five million? I would be, that's just my own personal thought of it. Everybody's different, but I think that you need to go into the litigation just assuming that you will be disinherited. Can you live without that gift if you lose? So let's say that you, you, were, you had a right, if you win the trust contest, you will get $5 million. What, what point, if there's a gift to you, do you say, I'll take that gift and not file a trust contest? Is it a million dollars? Is it 1.5 million? Is it 500,000? I think it depends on my own personal financial situation. Okay. So if I, if, it was a, if I was gonna get a million dollars and I needed that money to live on or retire, and you know, let's say, let's say if I got that million dollars, I could retire and live a happy life, I would take the million and I wouldn't risk it. Even though you knew your siblings were walking away with five million each? It would be tough, but I think it depends. This is the point that people miss, I think, is that look, as heinous as it is to see people do the wrong thing, I think you gotta look at what's best for you. And so if you're going through one of these things, if you really need a million dollars and it would make a difference in your life and it would allow you to have a happy retirement, I can guarantee you that it's better to take that million and walk away than to try and fight because the fight's not gonna be pleasant. Now, if I was independently wealthy and I didn't need the million dollars and I just wanna you know, get, you know, set the situation right, then yeah, I would risk a million for five million, absolutely. So it kind of depends on your own personal situation and what that money will mean to you and your lifestyle. How would you view it? I, I would risk a million, I'd risk 1.5 million, I'd possibly risk two million, but if I start getting to 2.5 million and my delta is just another 2.5, it's funny that I would say that, yeah. just another 2.5 million on top of that, 2.5 million is life-changing money. Right. And that would be hard to file a trust contest with that on the line. What I would need to see myself, if I was gonna go more than 2.5 million, would be that grandma had dementia for the last 10 years, right. that she was living in a skilled nursing facility, that um, she had been diagnosed by five neurologists that said she didn't know where she was the last three years, and the amendment came within a week of her death. Now I'm gonna be a little bit more bold in my abilities to go forward on that. But I think you made a great uh, analysis there, and that is, this is a very personal decision. Mm -hmm. It depends on you. It depends on how much money you have to make in your lifetime. It depends on where you're at currently. Um, if a million dollars would make it so you could move to, I mean, I don't know anybody in Nebraska. I've heard Nebraska, you can live there cheap because nobody wants to live there. But, you know, you go to Nebraska with a million dollars, you're going to have a very nice retirement. No professional football, but, you know, it's, you know, it's Nebraska. So There's plenty of f football you can watch in Nebraska and just other teams. But Yeah. So well, they, they may have some college teams there, too. They're not very good. But, yeah, the, the college teams. So your point is when the amount that you're going to receive is less than the amount that you're going for. Like at some point you said when it's 2.5 that I'm getting but 2.5 that I could get. Yeah. Now you're not so sure. If right. If you're going to get $3 million, would you risk $3 million to go for another $2 million? No. So that's what your point is. is yeah. You don't want to risk no matter what, no matter whether I'm wealthy or whether I need it, because I mean, again, that's life-changing money. That's money that's tax-free for the most part. There may be a small amount of capital gains in there somewhere, but let's just call it tax-free money. That's essentially five million dollars of earnings to get a two hundred fifty thousand dollars gift. So for you, the amount that you're risking has to be less than the amount that you could potentially get. If that's you right. Win. That's right. And once it switches the other way, you're not willing to take that's that right. risk. And, and then you change up the numbers. And I, I now let's say that it's a hundred thousand dollars that I could get under the amendment, or I could go for five hundred thousand. I'm going in all day long. 
because it's, right. it's not enough money to change my life. Right. So I'll go ahead and I'll litigate. That's just me. Yeah. I'll litigate for the full 500000 And that's what I always tell people. It's a very personal decision. You have to make up your own mind as to what's right and what's not right. But it, it's, a tough, it's a tough call. Have any other questions, Kayla? A couple more questions. Uh, do I have to file an objection to a trust contest? And don't the courts independently evaluate the petition to determine whether there, there is problem, probable cause? So this is kind of an interesting question. So let's say I file a trust contest trying to invalidate an amendment, and you're favored by that amendment, Stuart. Do you really have to object to that, or will the courts do their own independent investigation and determination on my petition, or will they just rubber stamp it and say, granted? So this is one of those questions I'd love to give you a 100% answer yeah. to. I can give you a 90% answer to it. I think I know why you're smiling at this one, uh, because there was an incident you had. Yes, anyway. yes. So 90% uh, of the time, the courts are going to rubber stamp it because nobody else opposes it. And the court's not going to look that closely at it. This is not an accounting that's filed with the court where the court's going to independently look at what a trustee did with the money or an executor did with the money or in a conservatorship action, what, how, what money was spent on the conservator. This is simply somebody coming and saying this is an invalid final amendment to the trust. Nobody, no beneficiary shows up to contest that. Chances are the court's going to rubber stamp it. That's going to be an invalidated amendment. And your sibling who filed the trust contest is going to win by default, essentially. We did one time file something in front of a particular judge who will re remain nameless. I actually respect this judge a very lot. Very good judge. Yeah. A very good judge. Um, and nobody showed up to oppose it. It was not a trust contest, but it was something similar to a trust contest. And I was so happy because no beneficiaries, we had done all the notices, nobody had opposed it. And I came in and said, Judge, you just, uh, you know, we win. And the judge goes, Oh no, I, have to, I have to give you my <laughs> analysis of this. And he gave his analysis and went against, or was it a she? It was a he or she. Yeah. Uh, went right. against the analysis and basically on their own said no. But I would say to a person that asked me this question now, currently, and we don't know the answer, you, if you think you need to file that objection, you better file it because mm -hmm. if you don't, chances are the court's not going to get all, not going to care too much about your interest under the trust amendment. Yeah, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the time, if somebody files a petition, the court's gonna approve it if nobody comes to object. I mean, the court does review these petitions, but they don't have the staffing or the resources to independently investigate them. They don't do depositions, they don't question people, they don't look into the medical records, they don't determine what's right and what's wrong on their own. And that's even true of accountings. I mean, they look at accountings, but the court's resources are limited. They can't just go in and do a full-blown forensic accounting on every accounting that's ever filed with the court. Right. They only can do so much. And so if somebody files a petition to invalidate something and nobody objects, most of the time it's out. Well, and I would think as a judge, me personally, I mean, I've never been a judge, but if I'm sitting there as a judge, I would say, well, the fact that everybody got notice of this and nobody has a problem. And nobody has a problem with it. They must be okay with right. it. So I'm, I'm going to take it one step further. Yeah. And say, oh, okay, everybody's on board with this. Right. That's right. So, yeah, if, unfortunately, if you want to stop somebody from overturning an amendment and they file a, a petition to contest a trust or a lawsuit to contest a trust, you're going to have to respond some way if you don't want that to happen. All right, Kayla, I think we have one more question. The final question is, does the violation of the no contest clause occur if the parties settle outside of court? Well, this could be a theoretical answer, or it could be a practical answer. But the question is, uh, you know, what happens? I mean, obviously, there probably has been a uh, there probably has been a violation of the no contest clause, but now the parties 
have settled and agreed to end the lawsuit outside of court. So what's the impact from that regarding no contest clauses? It depends. So if you did a mediation like we've been talking about, a pre-lawsuit mediation, then no, you haven't triggered the contest because in order to trigger the no contest, you have to file something in court. That's another question people have a lot of times is like, well, somebody's saying that the trust is invalid. Can't they be disinherited? Have they filed in court? No, they haven't. Okay, no, it doesn't. It only applies to court filings. By the way, they don't, they don't ask that as a question. They, they tell us, oh, that person's disinherited because... Yeah, because they're saying it's invalid. I'm yeah, like, right. Where did you read that? Oh, yeah, no, no, you need to look that up, Mr. Albertson. That's no. how that works. No, no, and it's, no, like, no. it's like, no, that's not, that's not how that works. Yeah, so if you haven't filed anything in court, you've not triggered anything. So that's the first thing. Secondly, if you work out a settlement, your settlement document should say what happens. And so the, the settlement should say that you know, you get this and he gets that and she gets that and that's the way we're going to do it and nobody's going to and the, you get a full release which means you're not going to file anything further including a no contest but if you don't get a full release and if you don't have a term in there saying nobody is going to file to violate to to contest or to uh, enforce the no contest clause uh, then I guess in theory even after a settlement somebody could file a petition and try to trigger the no contest clause but I don't think it would overturn the settlement agreement. So the settlement agreement at the end of the day is the contract, it's the new document that controls. So I think from a practical standpoint, a no contest clause is not going to apply if you settle outside of court or prior to your trial, mm -hmm. would be my view of it. What do you think? The, 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 the question was, does a violation occur? And I, when I look at the term violation, mm -hmm. that to me is a triggering event. And so theoretically, yes, there's been a triggering event. If they file in court. If they file in court. Yes. Uh, but because there's a settlement agreement, we generally, I can't think of a settlement agreement, we haven't done this, there's general waivers, there's mutual waivers. General release. General yeah. releases. And so... But it, do, you, do you think that a violation occurs if the parties settle outside of court, having never filed a lawsuit to be no, with? No, because the statute says there has to be a filing. There's many things the statute says, but one of those components is there has to be a filing. Right. And so there's not a filing, and, and a mediation is not a filing. Right. And by the way, courts love, judges, in my experience, love, love, love. They love pre-lawsuit mediations. They love mediations during the case. They love settlements. They love settlements. And so I, it's going to be hard to find a judge that's going to give anyone a hard time from going to, uh, to go to a mediation. In fact, anything you say or do at a mediation can never be raised in a court. Yeah, it's all privileged. It's all privileged. Yeah. And so mediations are favored. And so I think that that would be, in, in, in all cases, I don't think a court would hold a no contest clause against anybody for doing pre-lawsuit mediation. Yeah, once they settled, the court's happy. It's yeah. like, yeah, take your settlement and right. get out of here. Right. Absolutely. Do you have any other questions, Kayla? That's it for today. Okay. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, Stuart, for your time. Sorry about my voice today, a little hoarse, but we got through it. Horse versus Barry White. I'm <laughs> going to take horse. Um, <laughs> I take Barry White. Yeah, and then we want to thank Kayla and Manisha. They make us, uh, you know, we basically just show up and blab, and they actually get all this put together for us. So thank you so much. A lot of hard work goes into this. Yeah, yeah you'd be shocked at how much work goes into it. Right. Uh, thank you for joining the Sam Fight Win live stream. This will be available by recording on YouTube and Facebook. You can also find an audio-only version on our website or on audible.com where you can listen to all of our live episodes as much as you want. And what better thing is there to do than to listen to our melodious voice? I do it going to sleep every <laughs> night. So. Put you right out. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you for joining us. See you, we'll next, see you time. next time.